me invite you to take your Bibles and go with me back once more to Ecclesiastes chapter 5 this morning. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Over the last couple of weeks, there's been a number of different news articles that caught my attention that were kind of driven by different uh, economic or financial things, uh, realizing uh, reports on the third quarter and uh, the U.S. spending and growth and increase of consumer debt. And I thought, wow, uh, it just continues. It's amazing how we will kind of spend ourselves into oblivion, whether we do that personally or politically and nationally as well. Um, or on the other hand, to go, hey, uh, Black Friday's coming, and uh, it amazes me anymore that it's no longer Black Friday. It's like Black Friday month. Um, because it was November 1st, and we were getting advertisements about Black Friday uh, deals that are out there. Uh, but by far, the biggest article that's kind of caught my attention, and very admittedly, it's outside my general sphere of knowledge, so if I misstate something, you can correct me, uh, really can be summarized by just a few letters, uh, like SBF or FTX maybe would be the more common acronym that's known. Uh, because there's been a major story unfolding over the last couple of weeks where we find out that Sam Bankman-Fried, who is the founder of a cryptocurrency, FTX, and Alameda Research, a means of uh, trading and exchanging this cryptocurrency, this fake money, um, is caught in what appears to be perhaps the largest fraud in the entire world's history. Uh, maybe to pass that of even the scandal with Enron that some of you would remember from several years ago now. To realize here's an individual who over the last few years came up with this cryptocurrency and this exchange and uh, accumulated rather quickly quite an anticipated valuation of his own personal wealth. For even it wasn't too long ago that this individual's wealth was assessed to be 22.6 billion dollars. And yet today, it is estimated that his material wealth is zero. Because he's taking investors' money and those who bought into his cryptocurrency and turning around and using it to buy things for himself, to be uh, very generous in giving to others. I mean, he was the second largest donor to one of the two political parties in the 2020 election. And yet, to find out, he really didn't have the money that it was assessed to have. And again, we'll see what time goes on to show, but maybe the biggest fraud in history with what he's done with other people's money. It's come to mind as we come to the text in Ecclesiastes chapter 5 that's in front of us today, because we're going to be confronted with the reality that those who selfishly live for wealth often sinfully use wealth and find out that in the end, it's all vanity. It's all worthless. It's all chasing after the wind. We are called to live for something more. As we've studied and seen over and over in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon is making the argument that satisfaction and meaning in this life is not found by pursuing wisdom. It's not found by pursuing material wealth. 
It's not found by living for pleasure. It's not found by going and drinking. It's not found by going and building. It's not found by listening to all kinds of music. It's not found in pursuing relationships with women. He will tell us over and over and over again that all of those things are vanity. They're worthless. It's like chasing the wind. We've been listening as Solomon makes this purposeful investigation into meaning and satisfaction in life in all different directions. And yet the repeated refrain, this miserable conclusion is, all is vanity, all is vanity. Thankfully, along the way, we've encountered, though, this joyful satisfaction We first saw it at the end of chapter 2. It marks the end of chapter 5, just a little further than we will get this morning, where he says, here's what I have come to the conclusion that we are to do. We are to enjoy the life that God has given. This is man's portion. This is the gift of God. And as we live with that enjoyment of what God has given, we do it fearing him, knowing that for all these things we will be brought into judgment. That's the conclusion that he gets to at the end of chapter 11 and again at the end of chapter 12. But even as we review chapter 5, we'll see him point to it once along the way. You know, as Solomon has been working through this, he observed that in his pursuit, there are different seasons of life. There are times where things are going great, and then there are times where things are difficult. That was the beginning of chapter 3. And coming out of that, he recognizes that in all these seasons of life, God is sovereign. He makes all things beautiful in his time. And that when wrongs occur, he works to right those wrongs. He judges and rewards both the righteous and the wicked, we were told in chapter 3. And so he's trusting God and God's sovereignty in the midst of all these different seasons of life saying, I need to fear him. I need to enjoy whatever he gives. I'm not going to seek satisfaction in all these other things. But end of chapter 3, into chapter 4, he starts to see all kinds of problems. He's like, this is wrong, and this is wrong, and this is wrong. Much of it dealing with oppression, and even that's where our text will pick back up in chapter 5, verse 8, here in just a few moments. But as he grapples with these problems that threaten the beauty that God is seeking to create and work, he sort of zooms out and says, so when it comes to worshiping God, you'd be better be very careful how you worship the sovereign one. You live for other things, they're worthless, but when you come to worship God, here is a caution for worship as we saw last week. His caution for worship is against the foolish abundance of words. That's chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. It's worth repeating and reminding us as we gather today as a church family to worship God, to go, it's very important that we consider the significance of what we're doing. We summarized it with a few principles last week in this caution for worship against the foolish abundance of words to go, verse 1, approach worship carefully. End of verse 1, prioritize listening attentively. Fits again for us this morning. Into verse 2, avoid speaking irresponsibly. Verse 4, 5, and 6, keep your word faithfully. And finally, verse 7, worship God reverently. Even there again in verse 7, he says, you know, in dreams and many words, there's lots of vanity. There's lots of worthlessness. But fear thou God. 
live with a life-orienting reverence for God. Going, God, as I come to worship you, as I go through life, I want my respect for you, my fear of you to dictate all that I do. Coming out of that caution for worship, we come to the text in front of us today. We're going to consider verse 8 down through verse 17 then as a consideration of worship. To go from this caution for worship of be careful what you say, watch out for the foolish abundance of words, to a consideration of worship, we might say a consideration of what we live for, and we'll call this the selfish approach to wealth. The selfish approach to wealth. Along the way in our study of Ecclesiastes, we've hit similar themes in a couple different times. We've uh, gone to Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 6, where he reminds us, we don't lay, lay up treasure here on earth, we lay up treasure in heaven. We don't live for the here and now. We, uh, Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things that we need will be added to us. In fact, in that same section, Jesus says in verse 24, you can't serve God and material possessions. You can't serve God and mammon. You, you can't live divided and Solomon comes out of this emphasis on how we worship God, and then he goes to something that many culturally worship as well. He goes to material wealth and says, if you live for material wealth, you will never be satisfied. Whether you do it selfishly or whether you do it sinfully, it will never satisfy. As we look at the consideration of worship, the selfish approach to wealth, notice first that Solomon observes a problem. In verse 8, Solomon observes a problem. We could call the problem self-centered leadership. Self-centered leadership. He says in verse 8, If thou seest the oppression of the poor and violent perverting of judgment and justice in a province, marvel not at the matter. For he that is higher than the highest regardeth, and there be higher than they. Again, it's not a new theme. We saw this at the end of chapter 3 as well as, again, the beginning of chapter 4, that there are those who are in leadership. They're in positions of power and influence, and they abuse that opportunity for personal gain. Rather than making right, fair decisions, they decide, what's in it for me? How can I advance my cause? And they oppress and mistreat people in the process. Here, Solomon's admonishing us, telling us that God stands against that kind of living. He did the same back in chapter 3, verse 16 into verse 17, to say God will reward, God will judge both the righteous and the wicked. Here in Ecclesiastes 5, verse 8, Solomon observes that there are higher levels of leadership that can bring accountability and judgment against this kind of behavior. That when someone takes advantage of the position, the power, the influence that they have and leads in a self-centered manner to take advantage of others, they will be judged. Having observed the problem of self-centered leadership, notice secondly, Solomon then states a principle. He states a principle in verse 9. We could call it this, others-oriented stewardship. Rather than self-centered leadership, these things rightly understood should lead to others-oriented stewardship. He says, moreover, the profit of the earth is for all. The king himself is served by the field. To go, here's the highest level authority, the one that Solomon himself maintains in writing this text, 
and says, that individual, that king is responsible to manage the fields, to, to maintain them for productivity, to take even those under his authority and see all benefited by what the earth produces. But even in that stewardship, the king himself is benefited to go, I need what the earth produces as I have a responsibility to maintain it for others. Biblically, we could recognize this reality that all belongs to God. We, we sang songs even along those lines this morning. Psalm 24, verse 1 would say it this way, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and they that dwell therein to go, God made it all. He owns it all. We just have opportunities to steward whatever he's entrusted to us. Rather than living for personal gain like the leaders in verse 8, we recognize the need to benefit all as is listed in verse 9. That principle of stewardship, we could say, even goes back to the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapters 1 and 2, to realize God creates all. He owns it. He just makes it by speaking, right? And then he turns around in verses that maybe we just kind of run past and does something that, in some respect, we ought to see as just incredible and almost unthinkable. To turn to man created in his image and go, now this is given to you to exercise dominion over. To be a steward over in leading with this delegated authority in what God has given. You know, we'll see this maybe unfold in some of the wrong thinking in the text that comes to follow. But I think it's worth asking now, in light of the self-centered leadership of verse 8, the others-oriented stewardship of verse 9, how do you view the stuff that God has placed under your stewardship? Do you realize you're not the owner? You're just a manager of whatever God has entrusted you with. To go, God, this isn't mine. This is yours. Do you view it that way or do you view it as your own? Are you selfish with it, going, how do I make my best life regardless of anybody else? Are you willing to be generous, to meet the needs of others, to care for others, to carefully steward what God has given, to, to see it grow, to help others? While observing the problem of self-centered leadership, Solomon states this principle of others-oriented stewardship. Third, Solomon gives some perspective. Solomon gives some perspective. We might call it an upside-down relationship. An upside-down relationship. It's kind of the thinking is inverted. What, what we would expect to be the outcome is not what the outcome ends up being. I think we get this because we, many, if not all of us, have experienced things like buyer's remorse, uh, where there was that item you were saving for or maybe you weren't saving for, but the right sale came along. Not that that happens at this time of year. And you spend, and you think, you know what? My life is just going to be so much easier with this. I mean, with this device, with this technology, it, I, just, I, I think this is the game changer. This will be it. And then you find out, no, actually, it underperforms. It, it, it's not what you thought it would be. Or just, frankly, you go with you, and the problem isn't the tool. The problem is the person. Or on the other hand, it's like, well, you know, if I just had this, it would, it would make life more fun, more satisfying. 
Solomon here is going to walk us through, in essence, the buyer's remorse or the uh, upside-down relationship that happens often with people who live for wealth. What is pursued in the acquisition of abundance doesn't last or work. The end result is the opposite of the goal. It's helpful for me to remember, so I'll just remind you that when we hear these things, we are listening to wise, wisest, wealthy Solomon. This is the first Kings 3 man who is wiser than any man to ever live, who God also blesses abundantly, who now looks around and says, you know, when you see people who live in self-centered leadership, it's a problem. There is to be an others-oriented stewardship to see needs met. So here's a perspective of the upside-down relationship that happens when someone lives for wealth. Number one, as we come to verse 10, notice the disappointment of wealth. The disappointment of wealth. We could say it this way. Wealth never satisfies those who live for it. Wealth never satisfies those who live for it. Again, just by way of application, I would encourage particularly the younger people in the room who maybe life and experience hasn't gotten you as far or hasn't gone as far for you yet to listen to Solomon to realize, you know, in spite of the messaging of the world, if I live for material things, I'll never be satisfied. We read this disappointment of wealth when Solomon says, verse 10, he that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver. Human desire is never satisfied by possessions. Having more isn't the answer. It's just a lie. It's just a mirage to go, well, you know what, if I just had, if I just had, and then the next thing you know, it's, if I just had, and it's the heart that says, I need more, I need more, I need more. It lives in discontentment. Furthermore, he states, nor he that loveth abundance, you know, lots of things, lots of stuff with increase. This is also vanity. That word increase has the idea of a growth of income. To go, I've gotten more. The, the crops were bigger. The paycheck was larger. I've got more. Those who live for that, he says, this is worthless. It's vanity. It's like chasing the wind. It's empty. You know, I'm reminded that really what we are with little is what we become with more. We go with us. The, the selfishness, the problems that we have get magnified. I believe we see similar teaching with Je- when Jesus' words in Luke chapter 16, where he says, He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in that which is much. He that is unjust in least is unjust also in much. You know, as God prospers, as things grow, what we are, we go with us. But wealth never satisfies those who live for it. In looking at the perspective on wealth, we've seen first the disappointment on wealth. Secondly, look at the dependence of wealth. If the disappointment said wealth never satisfies those who live for it, the dependence of wealth reminds us that wealth always multiplies those who need it. In my mind, I put need in quotation marks. They need it. He says in verse 11, when goods increase, they are increased that eat them. And what good is there to the owners thereof, save the beholding of them with their eyes? 
here. You know, we can look at it personally. We could look at it from a business standpoint. It doesn't matter that the more you have, the more it takes to maintain and the more people it's involved. It's like the more you make, the more goes to the government, right? And then it might be, and there are others who come and they need it. And Proverbs speaks to the fact that there are those who become friends to those who are of means, simply not because they're true, genuine friends, but because they want to live off of what someone else has. Solomon here is pointing to the dependence of wealth, that wealth tends to multiply those who need it, those who are taking it in. More employees, more responsibilities, more family members, more friends, more taxes, more people but not necessarily close friends. This isn't what was pursued in the selfish pursuit of wealth, but it is the result. Again, we we don't like it when someone values us in a relationship. Like, you know what? I really like you for everything that you do for me. Right? That's what Solomon's painting a picture of here. To go, actually, I want people who value me or who value you for who... I am and who you are, not because, well, it's like, well, I really just like what you do because a relationship that's built on that kind of selfishness is not very satisfying. And Solomon's looking as someone who is wise, who God has blessed with abundance of wealth and says, here's the dependence that's created by it. Wealth always multiplies those who need it. Third, having looked at the disappointment of wealth and the dependence of wealth, notice third, the disturbance of wealth. We could summarize the thought this way. Wealth often generates stress for those who have it. Wealth often generates stress for those who have it. He paints a picture of it inhibiting rest in verse 12. Look at the words with me. He says, the sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he little or much, but the abundance of the rich will not suffer him to sleep. He says, you know, here's a guy who works hard, and maybe he had a great meal, maybe he didn't, but because he's put in all this effort, he's labored to the point of exhaustion, he sleeps well. And then he, on the other hand, he says, here's someone who is abundant. They've been blessed with incredible wealth. They're described in the text as rich, and they can't sleep. They've got stuff to worry about. They've got problems to solve. They've got employees to care for. And on and on the list goes. Perhaps you've realized this even in your own life, to realize, you know, uh, I started out with that car, and then God blessed, and I have this other car, and now I have two cars to fix. And I was really excited about, man, I'm, I'm going to live in this home, and it's going to be wonderful. I mean, it's part of this American dream that if I own this home, and now I've got this pipe that's leaking, and this heater that's broken, and on and on it goes. You know, it's just reality that the more we have, the more there is to worry about, the more there is to get stressed about. I think even culturally, we've watched people realize this with kind of the push to minimalism. To go, you know what? I'm not made, this may be a spiritual approach, but I'm not made for here. I'm going to try to travel lightly. To go, wealth often generates stress for those who have it. He's painted here as this rich individual who is not going to enable him to sleep. And, you know, even whether it's a a lack uh, or whether it's a uh, overemphasis on work and the amount of stress that's produced, or it's like, well, actually, I can take it easy. 
I can be lazy. Well, wealth or uh, sleep escapes those as well. Solomon will teach that in the book of Proverbs for the one who's lazy and who doesn't want to get out of bed. And it's like, I just toss and turn back and forth, unable to sleep, but really having nothing to do. We've looked at the disappointment of wealth, the dependence of wealth, the disturbance of wealth. Fourth, look at the disappearance of wealth in the verses that remain. The disappearance of wealth in the verses that remain. We've said it this way so far. Wealth never satisfies those who live for it. Wealth always multiplies those who need it. Uh, Wealth often generates stress for those who have it. We look at the disappearance of wealth, we say it this way. Wealth may leave those who hoard it. Wealth may leave those who hoard it. It isn't permanent. It can disappear unexpectedly and painfully. I think in American culture, we can realize this as you watch and say, well, I'm I'm investing, I'm trying to plan wisely for the future because there is no guarantee that I'm going to be healthy at 70 years of age, right? We have this really unique cultural phenomenon where people are living longer and longer and longer. It's a blessing. But at the same time, it means I have to plan a little bit further and further and further because the number of people 100 years ago who lived to 90 was very small, and not so much anymore. And so I'm, I'm planning ahead, and I'm, I'm saving, and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be a good steward. And then all of a sudden, the market changes, and 25% disappears. And we go, oh, oh, no. And we worry about wars and pandemics and political policies and supply chain issues, and on and on it goes. And they realize, you know, well, weather systems happen, and my house has this major issue. And realize, you know, what we were working for, what we were trying to preserve can disappear very quickly. Solomon paints a picture here that says, because wealth was loved and lived for, it was lost. Possessions are not permanent. Notice how he introduces it in verse 13 as we see the disappearance of wealth. There is a sore evil which I've seen under the sun. It's like, as I've looked around, I have seen something that is just agonizing. It's hard to accept. Namely, riches kept for the owners thereof to their hurt. He points first in the disappearance of wealth to selfish accumulation. He says, here's this guy who views himself as an owner and he's keeping everything. I need more. I need more. I need more. And he's keeping it. He's preserving it. He doesn't view himself as a steward. He doesn't view himself as a conduit. He views it as something he's getting for himself. Beyond the self-accumulation, Solomon then, in painting this evil, points to unexpected, or we might call it catastrophic loss. Verse 14, but those riches perish by evil travail, by this unanticipated loss. To the point where he says at the end of the verse, he has a child, he has this son, and there's nothing to give to this individual. I've been living, I've been hoarding, I've been collecting, and now I have a child, and there's nothing left because God has changed what's taken place. Right? Again, we could go to Luke 16 as another example. We referenced it a moment ago, but it's like, I'm going to tear down my barns, I'm going to build greater, and God says, actually, different plan. You're not making it to retirement. 
this night your soul is required. God has a wonderful, but at times very hard way of taking the things that we live for and worship, our idols, and saying, gone. Psalmist says, I've observed a very difficult, sore evil that the person who selfishly accumulates faces unexpected loss. As a result, Solomon speaks to his motivation as unprofitable motivation in verses 15 and 16. This man who's been collecting this all but loses it unexpectedly, has nothing to pass on, says, what you've lived for has been worthless. Verse 15, he came forth of his mother's womb. As he came forth of his mother's womb, naked shall he return to go as he came and shall take nothing of his labor which he may carry away in his hand. This also is a sore evil that in all points as he came, so shall he go. And what profit hath he that had labored for the wind? He looks at this man who hoarded things, who lost those things and says, now what you were living for, what was the point? I would remind us that a text like this, we've hit this a couple different times in Ecclesiastes, is not an argument for bad stewardship. It's not an argument for, well, I just don't need to save. I mean, we could go to Proverbs and see Solomon's writing there and see that actually, whether we look at the ant in Proverbs chapter 6 or the general Proverbs later on, there's a lot of wisdom in saving. There's a lot of wisdom in planning for the future, right? I mean, stands out to me, I've challenged you before, that that whole text that talks about a man uh, that doesn't care for his own house and is worse than an infidel, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 7 and 8, what's the context of that? It's the context of widowhood, actually. Like, we think of it of providing, like, while we're living, and in the context, it's like, what happens when someone has lost their spouse? Like, there is a need to plan for the future, no doubt biblically, but Solomon's point here is the person who lives selfishly for these things and is not thinking of others, is not being generous, is not living for the Lord, is judged. What he lived for, his purpose in life, is gone. Again, he uses that phrase we've touched a couple different times in our study. He hath labored for the wind, right? He's chasing the wind. We illustrated now several times ago where uh, you walk out from church, nice fall day, wind blows, and all of a sudden your bulletins, your notes, all that stuff is like flying away, and you're doing that crazy like dance in the parking lot, trying to step on, grab your papers as they blow away. You might get your paper. But if you try to grab the wind, good luck. Solomon says, here's this guy. He's trying to hoard stuff. It unexpectedly disappears. He has nothing to pass on because what he worked for was nothing. It was like chasing the wind. Again, God has a wonderful, albeit difficult, way of teaching us this lesson. One of you mentioned in just talking through one of the other texts in Ecclesiastes, one of you mentioned, yeah, we see that in the book of Haggai. I thought you're right. Where in the book of Haggai, God calls his people. They've, they've returned out of captivity. They're supposed to build the Lord's house, but they're not. They're concerned about building their own house. And what does God tell his people in Haggai 1, 5 and following? Consider your ways. Think about how you're living. And he points to the fact that God has a way of putting holes in the bags, like 
we're going to collect, we're going to accumulate, we're going to just keep socking away, and there's a hole in the bottom of the bag, and it's just going out. And God's like, look, if you would just think about it and you'd value the right things, this could change. And God rebukes his people. When we live for wealth, it is a hollow endeavor. It's an upside-down relationship. I, I think about the example of Job, as I was studying this week, where in Job 1, he loses everything. Right? And yet his perspective is that point is not, I've done nothing but chase the wind. I mean, his language is very similar to Solomon's here, where he's like, I came from my mother's womb and I'll return the way that I came. It's like the Lord gave and the Lord took away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. What he worshiped was different than the man Solomon describes here. Like, God, I'm living for you with whatever you give. So we've looked at the disappearance of wealth. Wealth may leave those who hoard it. We've seen selfish accumulation, unexpected loss, unprofitable motivation. But notice finally the miserable conclusion. The miserable conclusion. Having said, here, look at the self-centered leadership versus other or others-oriented stewardship. Now he's been building out this upside-down relationship. He ends this section here saying, all his days, the guy who lived this way, all his days also he eateth in darkness, and he hath much sorrow and wrath with his sickness. That's quite the statement in verse 17. Some look at the word darkness and translate it misery. To go, he's alone, he can't see, doesn't really have much to live for because he valued the wrong things. You continue to read what it says. He says, he hath much sorrow and wrath with his sickness. He's sick, but even notice the combination of emotions present. He's sad, disappointed hurting, emotional, but he's also angry. He's not satisfied because he lived for the wrong things. Now, again, we're not going to get there this morning, but just remind you, at the end of this chapter, Solomon's going to go, so here's what we do live for. We enjoy the life that God gives us, knowing that it's a gift from him. Saying, God, I'm living for you. I'm fearing you. That's where he left off in uh, Ecclesiastes 5, verse 7, that he'll pick up at the end of the chapter. To go, God, whatever you entrust to me, I'm going to live for you. I'm going to fear you. I know that one day I'm going to be judged by you. But in between, there's this consideration to go, so what do you worship? What's your approach to wealth, particularly the selfish approach to wealth? Obviously, we live in a country that God has blessed amazingly. The material possessions, material resources are astounding. But as believers, we're to have a different perspective, to go, I don't live for that. Whatever God gives, whatever he takes away, I live for him. I enjoy the life that he has given. We end the text here in verse 17. We're told about a man who's miserable, who's alone, who's sad, who's angry, because he lived for things. He lived for money. He hoarded it all and lost it. So I ask you, what's your approach to whatever God has given? 
Are you satisfied or selfish? Are you willing to say, God, I'll use it to bring glory to you? Or do you say, I'm going to use it to live for me? The wisest, wealthy man who's ever lived gives us caution to say, here's what happens with a self-centered approach to material things. Let's pray. Father, once again, I thank you for the text of this book, the wisdom that Solomon lays out for us as he pursues meaning in life in so many different ways. Lord, I pray that you would take the words that we've considered from your word this morning and use them to counter the mindset of the culture we live in. We, we live in a society that tells us that more will satisfy, that more is to what we are to pursue instead of realizing, God, that you are the giver of all. You have the right to take it. We have an opportunity simply to steward whatever you've put into our hand. Lord, I pray that you would use what you've given us, use us to bring yourself glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We'll finish again with a hymn this morning. Pastor Gary, would you come lead us?